Hello everyone, my name is Jonathan Hewitt and welcome to the Conservative Voice Show, your place for honest, controversial, and the hottest in political conversations. Hey, so what's up Patriots and welcome back. So we have a pretty awesome show together actually today. We have a special guest joining us. He is the founder of the New Era of Republicans. He is a very, very outspoken conservative and currently attending a very liberal college in Florida. Him and I, we've talked offline. We met on Instagram where he is the host of a pretty controversial um, conservative channel on Instagram in the world of the woke culture. And so we, we will talk to him today about his beliefs on the 2020 election, COVID-19, the vaccine, the stimulus, the woke culture, foreign policy, and everything in between, guys. So without further ado, I'm honored to introduce to you Chase. All right, well, Chase, so first I want to thank you for coming on here. I know that it's been a long time coming for you and I, so uh, I'm super excited to have you on the show. So oh, thanks for having uh, me on. Anytime, man. What I would like to do is I'd like to start off for all the viewers that don't know you or have never been up or followed New Era Republicans, or were following you before, and then you got banned on Instagram, and then now you're here again, trying to build it up again. Could you do me a favor, do them a favor, talk about who you are, what you represent, and what got you into kind of sort of political news um, on Instagram? Um, well, just starting off with what kind of got me uh, into all this and made me want to start a page of my own and everything was, um, you know, I had been keeping up with the news and all of that stuff um, already regularly uh, for quite some time leading up to, you know, me actually starting a page. So what I kind of looked at it as um, I'm already seeing all this information. All I have to do is just post it to a page. And um, I started the page, I think, around late August of 2020. And that was your first um, one, Yeah, that was my first one. Um, so yeah, I got up to around 8,000 and then I got totally screwed over on that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, what really got me into politics was just seeing how divided and just how bad kind of the state of, uh, politics was in our country. Um, you know, I, for your, I, I, you know, I always supported, uh, supported Trump, but over the years, I definitely, um, started opening my eyes more and more and more um, because on some things I was like, Oh, you know, he must've, he must've messed up, must've done something wrong here. Uh, and then you start looking into it and they're like, okay, they're really starting, you know, they're making, you know, issues that aren't issues and they're blowing and they're them up into molehills over here. Right. And they're, and they're making it into these huge national news stories. Like it's this huge scandal. And uh, I just, I just got tired of it. You know, I got tired of constantly. And even on Fox news, I mean uh, you know, about two years ago, I just totally stopped watching anything Fox News. And I, and I never really watched uh, much to begin with, but I just didn't like how just totally biased that was either. Cause I knew I was never going to see if Trump did anything bad or if Republicans were doing anything bad or wrong. I can completely agree with you with that. Like, So yeah, I, I kind of got tired of watching that as well. And just was like, you know, maybe I could start a page where uh, it's kind of willing to call out both sides. And so obviously I, you know, I rag on Democrats way more than Republicans. That's kind of, I'm sure you could all assume that, but, um, but I think a lot of it's justified to be fair as well. So, 
I definitely agree with the fact that a lot of it's justified. So with you being, I know that you've told me and you and I have talked offline a lot about what's going on in your life and things like that. Going to a pretty liberal college inside Florida, what, how is that to be a young conservative among there, especially a young conservative that is very vocal and outspoken in a world of like the woke culture and the cancel culture, just being everywhere inside the liberal community? Well, yeah. Um, I mean, just a quick story. I'll never forget my first semester actually there. Um, I was in a, I was in a, a, a national government class and uh, you know, you could tell the teacher and I, I really didn't like the teacher because you could just tell he was totally faking it too. He was like, yeah, you know, I used to be a Republican, blah, blah, blah. But you know, Donald Trump is terrible, 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 blah, blah, blah. And uh, he really just had a grudge against him and could never actually say anything good or, or half decent. He did. And I, it kind of got on my nerves, but you know, I, I, I bit like my tongue. see all the time with him is somehow Trump does all of these terrible, terrible things. And that he's just a mean person. But then when you ask them, well, what did he do that was so wrong? But not a single one of you can name like actual like enumerated reasons that are like legitimate and not just like two-year-olds crying about they didn't get their way. Oh, like, I know. Things that he's done wrong. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's absurd. So, so I'm there my first semester, uh, I'm in a government class and I'm a couple weeks in, you know, I'm, I'm not really that, that vocal in the class. I kind of knew the setting. I knew I was in the minority, you could say. And uh, the topic of abortion came up and I'm not even very, I'm not very religious. Um, I used to be, I'm not very religious anymore, uh, but I had a, a Catholic guy sitting next to me and he was a lot more outspoken um, about abortion and stuff. And so he spoke up and was basically saying how, uh, you know, it's bad, blah, blah, blah. And he disagrees with it. And he was very respectful too. He was just voicing his opinion saying, you know, I just, I disagree with this and uh, was going through why. And I mean, he just got jumped on. I don't know. Just got totally jumped on by a bunch of uh, other girls and even some guys in the class. Um, and, you know, just the, just the common attacks, like, you're trying to control the woman's body, blah, blah, blah. And, uh, and so then I finally was like, all right, I got to say something. And so he brought up how um, in New York, or no, he, not, he, he didn't say New York, but he said around the country, uh, you know, they're advocating for up to birth abortion. And, you know, all of the presumably Democrat or, or liberals in the class were like, that's crazy. No, they're not. No, they're not. And I immediately was like, all right, now they're just lying. And because I mean, in New York, I'm pretty sure uh, a year or two ago at the time of this, this was happening, uh, they had just passed a bill that actually allows for up to birth abortion. So that, I was like, no, that's just that's not true. Um, but after that and seeing the response though, of me just saying, you know, a simple, a fact really, I mean, you can, you can look this up anywhere in New York allows for up to birth abortion. And they, I mean, they freaked out as if I was saying something like sinister. And I was like, you know, that's what you guys apparently agree with. You know, I, I just, I couldn't believe it though. And after that, I, I really kind of, I don't know. I didn't speak up nearly as much in the class. Cause I was like, clearly this isn't going to go well. I need a good grade. Was that and kind yeah, of like the time just, that you realized that, or at least you had like your first real experience with like the, I guess we can call it like the woke culture, just that oppressive culture that comes out of the left for anyone that disagrees with them? Yeah, definitely in person. Yeah. I mean, I've of course seen videos and all that stuff, but, you know, growing up even in high school, um, like I said, I was religious for most of my life. I went to a Christian school. 
Um, and so I never really had to worry about uh, people being super, super liberal at a Christian school for the most part. And not that I was ever worried about it, but I just never, you know, came across something like that in, uh, in high school. And then obviously my first semester after a couple of weeks it hits me and I was like, well, <laughs> so it, it was a little bit surprising just that I, you know, encountered it so up and close. Yeah. That's, um, that's so, wild, yeah. man. Like and abortion is such a hot button item anyway. Like, yeah, you know, yeah. It, very, it, yeah, it really is. And yeah. It's just, I don't agree with it. Anybody who, anybody who follows my show, watches my show, follows me, knows me personally. I, I don't agree with it. I a hundred percent agree with you. I, I think there are very, very few times that abortion needs to be, needs to be legal. Otherwise right. I feel that it is used as a reason as people don't just want to have the consequences for their actions. Well, yeah, no, I, I agree hundred percent with that. Um, the only thing I would disagree and I don't think this should be wildly unpopular. Um, now, if you're raped or incest, yep. um, you know, 100%, I don't think you should be forced uh, to carry your child. Now, preferably, though, you know, now, even if you are raped or, you know, unfortunately, or incest or anything like that, I still don't think you should be going at eight months or nine months or seven months to go kill your baby after you've had, you know, months and months to think about it. I agree with that. I, you know, I would, I hundred percent am like, if you're going to do it, you know, only for those two circumstances, right. Not just for you're having casual, you know, sex or whatever, and something goes wrong. And, and now you don't want to face the consequences. I don't agree. I don't agree with that. But. I would agree. I would say that if you are, there are two instances that I could, and I will say this with a huge reservation that I almost don't want to agree with it these times, but I will agree with them on the premise that these are the only times they should be legal. If the mother chooses that is what she wants. And that is right. if you're a victim of sexual assault. So you're raped or incest. And I also agree that you should not be doing that late term abortion. Okay. If you're going to hold the child that long, then you can hold it and put it up for adoption afterwards. Yep. And the second one is if there is a medical condition that if you carry the child to full term, it will indicatively kill the mother. Oh I yeah, that, I even forgot about that one. I yeah, think I think that's, that's yeah. If yeah. she, she, every person in America has the ability to decide whether they are going to put themselves in a circumstance that will potentially kill them. That is a yeah. very, very. I, I have the choice whether I want to go in and drive my car on New Year's Eve when it's raining, knowing there's DUIs everywhere. That is my choice. Right. It should be a woman's choice as well if she knows that she's going to die during labor. To abort an early term abortion. Same with the sexual yeah. assault. You, you've had all this time to know about it. You should not be aborting a eight month old baby just because if you've made that far, that is game. Yeah. And I, and I think what's most um, disturbing uh, in a lot of these cases are a lot of people that I've come across with that are staunch, staunch, um, you know, pro-choice or whatever, um, is it comes across to me and, and I could be wrong, but it comes across to me like they almost use um, the misfortunate um, events of like rape or incest to justify why abortion should be legal. And once again, I don't think it's an either or. I think you can agree that it's bad, but also in situations like that, um, I think it might even be worse on the mother. So it's, it's really similar to everything that comes from the Democrat Party or those on the left. And I would even go some as far to say as those on the very, very like far right side of the political spectrum is that there yeah. is no medium ground. I cannot 
agree with one thing without being completely contrasted and disagree with something else. I can't agree that abortion is terror, agree that those are the only two times abortion should be legal, but then be anti-abortion if somebody from the far right. On the same thing is exactly. that I can't be, I, if I, they, the far left says, if I agree with those, then I am now pro-abortion. Like there is no, I cannot give and take, it's kind of like with President Trump, I can dislike, I'm sorry, I can dislike some of Trump's policies or I can dislike some of Trump's like things that he does on Twitter and just right. doing of like the State Department and employees. I, the right does not allow me to disagree with that while still being liking Trump. And it's like, you cannot disagree with some things without completely disagreeing with everything. And there is no allowance for like, I guess you could say like discourse on those hot button items, which yeah. I think is very, very necessary in our current political world. I don't know if you agree with that or not. No, I definitely do. I think uh, what we've seen definitely over the past couple of years, mostly, and this is the thing too, it's been happening far before Trump ever got into office. Um, for, I mean, you know, people think that all of our problems or all of the issues or all of the divisiveness and all came the second he was inaugurated, blah, blah, blah. It's just not, not true at all. It's kind of like, I don't know if you listen to Ben Shapiro at all, if you watch the Ben Shapiro show. Um, ben Shapiro says that a lot of people say, he says that a lot of people say that Trump killed modern day politics. That he, but yeah, no, yeah. that Trump is the coroner, not the murderer. Trump came up and saw modern day politics with a knife in its chest. I was like, huh, and pulled the knife out and then went and continued on politics. And so Trump yeah. is not the reason that modern day politics are all screwed up. He's just the coroner that happened to be like, well, yep, modern day politics suck. He's dead. Right. right. And, that's, and that's how Ben Shapiro kind of like explains it is that everyone blames Trump for all of it when all he did was announce that modern day politics is dead. He's not the killer of modern well, day politics. You know, it's 100% true. Um, another thing as well is we would not have a president um, like President Trump. If our if our politics were how they were 30, 40 years ago, that just wouldn't have happened. I want to um, you there because that is going to roll into the a question that I ask you a little bit later. And I don't want to skip over everything else. It's kind of like in the medium that will lead us up to that question. So just hold on to that thought for me if you can. Okay, yeah, that's fine. All right. I, I guess the last question before we roll into like the election and your thoughts on that is where do you see yourself going after college? Do you ever see yourself in the political life? Do you have any aspirations for that? Do you have some big dream of holding a big company? Like what is your like true like goals and where do you see yourself going given your political views? Um, well, yeah, it's a good question. Um, part of, you know, I probably should have covered this in the, in the, in the uh, introduction as well, but another part of the reason why I started the page was to kind of see kind of like testing the waters. Like, uh, do, do people agree with me? Do people like what I have to say or, or what I believe, blah, blah, blah. Um, because yeah, I would, you know, obviously, uh, enjoy if I could do something like this, uh, full time with my life after college. But, um, so yeah, that's kind of why another reason why I started it, just kind of testing the waters to see, uh, is this even possible? You know, is this something that I could do? Um, and even if it's not, um, cause I definitely was, I, it kind of felt like a kick, you know, like a, like a blow to the heart. Um, you could say when they took my other account and I was growing so fast, I mean, I was getting 
close to almost 400 new followers a day. Well, that's, uh, that's awesome. Like when you think that you could almost take that as like evidence in itself that one, on one point you were gathering so many followers so fast. And so people were agreeing with you. And there's that common like mantra that if people are hating you, you're doing something right. Yeah. So yeah, no, were, I, yeah, that's definitely true. If you true. were so threatening to those people on the left that now Instagram has now shut you down, I think that is a pretty clear that they were concerned that if you got any bigger, that you would start to threaten whatever views that Instagram was yeah. on at that time. Yeah, I mean that that was the crazy thing at the time too. Is I had I had had the page for like I said end end of end of August, and then out of nowhere, seemingly in uh, November around Thanksgiving time, um, my posts just started taking off like out of out of nowhere, like just going through the roof. And uh, I thought it was kind of like a one time thing, and then it kept on happening, kept on happening, and every day it, it became a normal thing now that my posts were just taking off. And, uh, you know, relative to the amount of followers I had, I was getting a lot of interactions and, you know, I was getting on the explore page, uh, multiple, multiple times a day. Um, and then, yeah, Insta just, just totally cut it off. So speaking of your Instagram, I follow you on there. And like you said, at the beginning, this account, almost 4,000 other people follow you and you are very, very outspoken in your beliefs on the 2020 election. So tell us. What do you think is actually going on with the 2020 election? Um, well, I can tell you what I, what I witnessed <laughs> when I was uh, sitting in my room on November 3rd in my apartment. Um, I pretty much stayed up the whole night. I was, you know, I was on the page. I was doing live updates, whatever, blah, 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 uh, as they came in. And it was around 12 or 1 AM. And, uh, I, I texted my mother. My mother was, you know, she's a big uh, Trump fan as well. And she was saying, uh, you know, text me if anything, you know, if anything changes or what's going on, who's winning, blah, blah, blah. And so I texted her uh, at around, you know, 12, 1 a.m. And I was almost 100. And, and if you go back, pretty much all of Twitter, all of social media uh, had believed that it was pretty much over. I mean, the margins at the time uh, you know, early, early morning on November 4th, it looked like it was, it was over. I mean, I had, I had, uh, uh, liberal friends texting me, um, saying, well, this is, you know, it wasn't looking good for them basically. And then around three, 4 AM, um, I start to see a little bit of a shift and I'm starting to see, uh, you know, big drops, for Joe Biden. I'm not seeing that much. It wasn't like Trump's numbers just stayed the same. Of course, uh, they were slightly going up as well, but compared to the huge drops that I was seeing, um, for Joe Biden, I, I really, I was somewhat concerned, but I was like, like, there's no way, right? Like there's no way that they're going to steal this or I'm going to watch this be stolen in front of my eyes. And so I went to bed around 4am. Uh, I wake up literally three, four hours later, um, and I get a text from my mom and she's like, it's not looking good. And I was like, like oh, what's no. going on? Uh, yeah. So I was like, what's it's going like on? TikTok, oh, so, no. Uh, oh, no. Exactly. So I go on Google or whatever. I'm looking at the live results or whatever. And, um, when I went to bed, I think it was, uh, Trump had, um, he was leading in Pennsylvania for sure by over like 400,000 votes, like 300,000 votes. It was a huge margin. And then um, pretty much all those Arizona, um, 
Nevada, you know, all the other swing states he was doing very well in. And then I woke up and pretty much all of it had changed all of it, you know? And, um, one of the things I said to myself that day actually was, all right, you know, there's, there's no way. Cause I still didn't want to believe that, uh, you know, it had just been stolen or that they were actually going to steal the election. So I was still telling myself, I was like, listen, if he actually loses, all right, I'm not going to be how Democrats were in 2016. I'm not going to start crying and complaining and and calling. Sorry, what? That's my question with it is, do, if there is no evidence, irrefutable evidence, how do Republicans, how do we move forward, right? Is that if there is evidence of election fraud, that we need to be pursuing that on both sides of the aisle. That should be a bipartisan effort to say, okay, well, there is these instances of alleged voter fraud with either substantial or unsubstantiated evidence, whichever right. one it is. We need to pursue that to whatever end comes out. Well, in my opinion, I think one of the big indicators is you'll see, like you're saying, alleged fraud occurring or alleged irregularities, things that just don't make sense, right? And, you know, all we're asking for is an investigation, okay? We're just asking for someone to look at these claims, tell us if they're real or not, and why and how or or why this happened or why this occurred. And the lack of transparency and just the kind of like hush-hush behavior around the whole hey, like this doesn't, you know, this doesn't add up really is what, you know, caught my eye and made me so suspicious at first. Cause I was like, you know, they had just told me that, you know, our president was a Russian agent for four years and put us through three years of investigations and an impeachment. Um, so I was expecting at least something, you know, at least some investigations to be occurring. And when I saw nothing, uh, I definitely started to raise my eyebrow. Um, I, definitely think- I, I just couldn't believe it. I think it's funny how the left, like, they scold us, those of us on the right. Now, I will be 100% upfront with you, and all my viewers know it. I've been saying it for months now, what it feels like. If there is legitimate voter fraud, then we need to be pursuing that. If there is not right. legitimate voter fraud and there's not legitimate evidence, then us as Republicans, we need to kind of internalize that, look to 2024, look to those Senate races, and move on. Like, that's what we need to do. 100%. 100%. So, what it, I think it's funny, though is that the Democrats berate us for those that yeah. <laughs> are standing out saying, no, like some of this doesn't make quite sense. Can we please just investigate this? And they're like, no, why would we ever do that? And they kind of said, you can just see the hypocrisy. Like you spent four years investigating Trump for being a Russian agent based on right. a factless steel dossier coming from what was found to be a Russian spy in America, State Department. So you're... And then you just want to tell us, no, that's not important. Move past it. And then they say, oh, well, he's still fighting the election. That's a precedent that's never been seen. When two decades ago, Al Gore contested the election with Bush yep. all the way up to the end. And so it's just very, very hard, I think, for Republicans to kind of sit back and just say, okay, like, how do we, how do you want us to just sit here silent when you are so loud about everything else? Right. Well, I think I think a lot of Republicans reached a breaking point um, and they were just like, all right, screw this, Um, because, you know, I think Republicans, a lot of their issues um, and and not necessarily, uh, you know, GOP voters, um, GOP politicians, uh, 
they're almost and, and while you know I'm, I'm 100% they're corrupt most of them not all of them or almost all of them um, but they almost play by the rules when it comes to conventional politics and you see from the left a lot um, they're a lot more eager and willing to throw that you know kind of agreed upon and it's and it's like a gentleman gentleman's agreement you know you're not going to call your uh, president a Russian spy for four years um, and gaslight the entire country. You know, that kind of used to be just a common sense thing. <laughs> and yeah, clearly that's like, just gone completely out of, out of the window. Um, and another thing as well is, yeah, like I was saying, the amount of gaslighting uh, that has occurred is, is mind blowing. Um, in 2017 or 2018, you know, with the steel dossier, um, let's not forget this, this report, you know, this dossier, whatever you want to call it, um, was alleging that Donald Trump was in Moscow in a hotel room uh, peeing on strippers. That's what the report alleged. Um, so yeah, I mean, you sit here and call us crazy, right? Um, but you had every mainstream corporate news outlet for four straight years pushing a report from a guy that quite literally said, yeah, you know, Donald Trump, he's in Moscow. Uh, you know, letting strippers pee on him and he's peeing on them. And it was just like, and this is what we're supposed to trust and believe. And ever since that too, it's just, you, you can never trust agencies like that and corporations like that ever again. Um, if they're going to try and deceive you, uh, you know, on something that's so absolutely critical and important, um, you know, like our president and stuff like that, um, then I don't put anything beneath them. You know, I, I really say- don't. And we'll talk about it a little bit later when we get into our topics about COVID and things like that, is that there is just a lack of trust from the American people in both the U.S. government currently and the American institutions. And just a lack of general overall trust. And I would almost say a disconnect between those things that Americans should be trusting, but no longer trust because of things like you said, that people should be able to trust the news. Like I should be able to turn on any news outlet and be able to receive a accurate and true depiction of whatever's going on. But that right. those institutions have been poisoned and corrupted by left-wing politicians. I, and I, I hate to say that because it just directly calls them out and says, hey, they are the only issue because they're not. There are corrupt, there are corrupt politicians right. inside the GOP across the nation. There is, and corruption is not just, it is a bipartisan thing, but the amount of corruption in regards to those on the right compared to those on the left. The left is staunchly, has staunchly more corruption inside, yeah. inside its base. Um, so Chase, I'm gonna ask you a very, very direct question. Do you believe that there was actual election fraud that changed the course of the election, right? So that we all know that we have a 150 right. million people voting. There's going to be some form of fraud. We know that. Right, yeah, no, that yeah. There is enough yeah. fraud that it directly impacted the outturn, outcome of the election? And if you do, why? Um, well, let's just take Pennsylvania, for example. And I'll, and I'll go through a few states really briefly. Uh, but Pennsylvania, you don't have to allege that any fraud occurred. You don't have to prove that any fraud occurred. All you have to simply do is look back at the rule changes and the unconstitutional law changes that occurred in that state prior to the election. Um, now, because the state legislatures didn't want to pass things um, like, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, 
they wanted to require signature verification. You know, that was kind of just a baseline thing that, you, you know, you have signature verification. The Secretary of State in uh, Pennsylvania, she completely just overrode that decision and was, ba- I mean, pretty much like we're seeing with governors right now, um, you know, they're not enforcing about, uh, laws. Kathy, uh, Book of Art? Yeah, Book of Art. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's almost like governors right now. It's the, uh, the idea of the law has kind of gone out the window. It doesn't matter if they say that it's law or if they say this is an order, that is the new, the new thing. That's what everyone now has to go by. Um, and I think what really is the worst in Pennsylvania is seeing a lack of action also by the state legislature, um, which is Republican, um, a Republican majority, um, that they, that they didn't really act on these issues. I mean, we knew that the Democrats were in court for months and months leading up to the election. They were trying to roll back common sense uh, kind of laws to ensure safety as best as we possibly could. And they were trying to roll those restrictions back under the guise of, you know, we don't want people dying to go to the polls. So we want to make it easier for them to vote at home, which I'm all for. But when you open the floodgates to fraud, do not then be surprised if people then start calling out, you know, this alleged fraud, or they start believing that fraud may have occurred when you've already broken the law countless times in your state. Um, I agree with that. Like I said, I don't know if you watch the show. If you don't watch the show, Chase, I hope after this you'll go and catch up on the 40 episodes. But um, I went over this, and I think that the biggest, one of the biggest issues I think for America, and when they lost, Black Americans lost, trust in their government almost is two instances. The changes of election laws in Pennsylvania with no action from the state legislature. And two, when Texas sued Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan. Yep. For the laws, I think the inaction by the U.S. I'm sorry, by by the U.S. Supreme Court, they failed Americans. And used on the guise of that Texans had no what was it, justifiable cognizance needed to bring such a lawsuit. And I think that I could agree with that. I think if we were looking at a state Uh, election, one one second, give give me one second, let me finish. We'll agree, you'll see. I could agree with that if we're talking about a state only election. So we're talking like midterm elections where we're only picking, or Pennsylvania or Wisconsin or Michigan, are only choosing elections that impact their state. Then sure, Texas has no justifiable cognizance of what occurs there. But when you're right. talking about a general election where the outcome of that election affects every single person in America, when you're exactly. talking about the voting of the president, I think that every single American has a justifiable cognizance of the exactly. importance that laws are followed in every state's election. Because the Constitution does say the time and place of manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by legislature thereof. But the Congress may at any time make laws or make or alter such regulations. The governor is part of the executive branch is not in, is not a legislature. The secretary right. of state is not a part of the legislation. Legislature. If they were going to change those laws, it needed to be done at inside the houses of Congress. And so I definitely, definitely can agree with you on the fact that Americans have lost faith. And you can almost see kind of what seems like a um, growing trend across every institution in America that we are just going to accept the results of the 2020 election and just say, okay, it is what it is. We don't want to cause any like rumples in the carpet. 
let's just move on. Right. And I think, um, I'm sure, I'm sure you obviously heard of the report. Um, you know, I can't obviously verify that it's authentic or anything, but apparently a Supreme court staffer overheard justice Roberts screaming at nearly the top of his lungs, uh, while in the, the room alone with the other eight justices, um, that basically, you know, you better vote no to hear this case because we have riots and we can't afford more riots, blah, blah. I mean, that was what he was quoted saying um, by a Supreme Court staffer who said he was screaming at the top of his lungs. I have not read that report. At, uh, I, would be, yeah. I would be interested in reading it. I have not read it. I will be honest. Um, after this, if you could just send me a link to it, that'd be awesome. But yeah. I could almost see that. So anybody knows, knows I'm actually in law enforcement. I won't say where I work just for obvious reasons, but I, I'm, yeah. I work law enforcement every single day. Um, and I even have people that I worked with who are Republicans by nature. Like most cops are Republicans just because of the, the profession that we're in. Right. right. And they were saying, when I was talking to them about it, they're like, yeah, we should not be challenging any of this. If it is overturned, there's going to be riots in the streets and there's going to be, and I'm like, in my head, I'm like, you took an oath to defend the constitution, regardless of what outcome yeah. it is, regardless. And I think that is just indicative of a widespread issue across the GOP base that kind of like that gentleman law, like you were talking about earlier that, okay, well, we're not mm -hmm. going to cause any uproar. We will be aristocratic and try to do it through diplomacy without causing any other uproar. And I think that is a huge issue that the American people are facing right now. And why a lot of people are, are losing trust even in their GOP representatives. Oh yeah. And I think another thing with the Supreme Court, um, because even I'm sure if uh, any of the people that follow me are listening, um, I try and get back to most of the DMs I receive and multiple, multiple times on my other account, my older account, um, you know, around Thanksgiving time, people were asking me, do you think it'll go to the Supreme Court? Do you think we'll win if it goes to the Supreme Court? And in the back of my head, I had kind of like a tiny inkling saying uh, there's, you know, I, I just had no faith in any courts, not just the Supreme Court. I had no faith in any court after seeing just how they tossed out every single lawsuit and kind of almost mocked the idea some of the judges in writing their report kind of mocked the idea of some of these cases and stuff like that. And so I, I really didn't have much faith in a lot of the courts going into it, but I still reserved some bit of faith in uh, the Supreme court. And I thought, well, you know, these other judges, these federal judges, the circuit judges, um, you know, maybe it makes more sense because they're under a lot of pressure, right? And although obviously the, the justices on the Supreme Court are under immense pressure as well, um, it's a lifetime job. You know, I, I didn't really see the need for them to be worried. Um, you know, there wasn't, the, you know, the, the amount of political pressure on the justices, I don't think was anywhere near um, actually as great in volume as it was for a lot of the lower level judges who you can easily find a lot of their information online. You can go to their house. I mean, you know, we, and we've seen this from, you know, leftist kind of, you know, Antifa type um, show up at houses and stuff like that. So it's understandable. I was say that, you can see that on the Proud Boy side too, just to be fair. Let's at least, I, at least try yeah. to remain some form of unbiasedness is that even on the right, like, even if they, like with liberals, like with, I'm sorry, with like Republicans, like, like alt-right Republicans and those on the far right going to like Gavin Newsom and, people like that's residents. So I definitely can see the reservation that some of them hold. 
but I think that you can agree with the yeah. fact that it doesn't matter about that. You still have a job to do and you still took a oath when you swore office, regardless right. of what that is. Right. And yeah, I mean, just even, you know, knowing that Trump had appointed three different justices, uh, you know, I had, I had, a, I had some faith that they would, uh, make the right decision, especially because the case was so cut and dry and it was so, uh, I mean, it was, it was a very well thought out case. Uh, I think, um, you that know, the Texas thought, lawsuit. That career is 2024, I'm telling you. Mm, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think. Uh, I don't think he'll uh, ever leave there, but uh, it was just I don't, a joke. Yeah, yeah um, he would never win. Speaking of elections in 2024, what impact do you think the lack of voter confidence is going to have on the Senate runoff races that were coming in. And unfortunately, it looks like the polls, at least the last ones that I saw, show both Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue down seven points in Georgia. Right. Um, now, I don't know exactly what polls you're referring to there, uh, but I do, because the only poll that I actually take uh, with any, any, you know, when I look at it, I take any, you know, actually anything of value away from it is the Trafalgar group, because um, they were actually spot on in 2016 exactly spot on um and they were almost exactly spot on in 2020 as well yeah um they were by far the closest and most accurate of any poll uh group that i saw and now they they have i think the margins about three points right now and that's a big shift from where it was even two three weeks ago uh, when these polls were coming out from the same group they had Loeffler up about three because uh, Warnock's a bit more of a divisive character. I mean, he's kind of like a self-avowed socialist, not something I really think independent GOP or not independent GOP, independent uh, Georgian Georgians would want to vote for. So that made sense to me that Loeffler was up, but um, now they're both down. And another thing to consider is I, I think I, I think I checked and there was about 2 million um, total people that voted in Georgia in the general election. Now, if you were to even discourage 1%, just 1% of GOP voters got discouraged and were like, you know, this fraud, all these allegations of fraud, the GOP is really fighting for Trump. You know, there's just a whole list of things that a GOP voter could complain about right now. And so if even 1% of those voters who voted in the general uh, election don't show out um, for the Senate runoffs, that's, tw that's nearly 20,000 votes that are gone yeah. from, you know, the, the GOP candidates. And I'm pretty sure the margin was like 12, 10,000, you know, or the official margin was Joe Biden won, I think 10, by 10 or 12,000 12, votes roughly um, in that area. And so that's enough right there. If you just discourage 1% of voters, um, the, the, you know, the Democrats are going to take the Senate. And I definitely think, uh, 100%. I have no doubt in my mind. Uh, we will have a Democrat controlled Senate come January 6th or 7th. Cause now they're saying it's might even take a couple of weeks to decide who won the Senate runoffs. And so it's like, Oh, great. Here we go again. Um, so who knows when we'll know who actually won, but I definitely think when we do know it's not going to be good news for GOP voters. Okay. I definitely don't think that. And if that is the way that you feel, that's just going to roll me right into our next question. Right. So if that is the case, how do you feel about the next four years? <sighs> uh, <laughs> yeah, this is, this is difficult. Um, now, one thing I will say, um, just being totally honest, is when 
uh, in the primaries leading up to Joe Biden before he was the, uh, you know, given the nomination um, by the Democratic Party or DNC. Um, he, uh, he was definitely the, more, the most kind of moderate, centrist type Democrat, I think, one of them, at least, that was out of out of the ones, you know, that they had to choose from out of the DNC. He was definitely kind of the more moderate, wasn't exactly crazy. Um, what I think we're going to see a return to, I don't think we're going to see crazy progressive policies enacted. Um, I definitely think there's going to be a heavy, heavy push. Uh, I think one of the more crazier things we could see is possibly packing the courts, which that I'm kind of likely sure on will happen if, uh, you know, if they take the Senate. Um I think they'll definitely pack the courts. But I think that's probably the scariest uh, thing that we'll see. And that's, you know, it's definitely very, very scary. If they're do you pack think the courts. that leading up to the election or even in the primary runoffs, Biden was kind of like championed as like a bulwark to the of moderation, kind of like he was going to be the candidate that is going to hold back the radical left inside the Democrat party. Do you still agree with that? Or do you think with like both his VP pick, and those kind of that, that shift back to that Obama era politics. Like I know um, yesterday I covered that he's going to bring back DOJ consent decrees for to fight systemic problems and that whole terms of systemic racism that the government and yeah. law enforcement as a whole is just systemically racist. And then some of his like like John um, John Kelly to like the climate envoy, just all these very left-leaning, right. far left-leaning appointees, do you still think that he's going to be that moderation against radical uh, policies? Or do you think that he will eventually give in just from all the noise and those that he's picking to be in his cabinet? Well, I think assuming, because um, I think it kind of has to be said, assuming he obviously makes the whole four years, um, I think, yeah, I think there will definitely be some slightly uh, progressive policies enacted. I think that's kind of a given. But I think a lot of it will be virtue signaling kind of policies, things that are not actually going to have a huge effect. I think we kind of have to, and I know, I think a lot of Republicans don't want to think like this right now, especially because even Donald Trump himself um, has been saying uh, the entire, during the, the entire campaign, Joe Biden is a crazy radical left and, you know, all this stuff. But I don't, I don't really think so. Uh, I think we're going to see a return to kind of the establishment politics that we saw for eight years under Obama. Um, I think you can expect a whole lot of more foreign aid to foreign countries for no reason. Uh, you can, I think you expect to see, we're going to re-enter the um, Iran nuclear deal, the Paris climate accord. Um, so basically stuff that are things that are bad for America on the long run, I think we will be rejoining and re-entering. Um, but things like Medicare for all or, you know, kind of the more radical policies that could be enacted now and have an immediate, immediate effect. I don't think we're going to see much of that. Um, I, don't, I don't think we're going to see much of that past under Joe Biden. I think a lot of it, like I said, is going to be a lot of virtue signaling policies um, that seem good, right? But actually aren't going to do much. Um, yeah. I think, I think I like I said, that. it's going to be a return to, right. And I think it's going to be a return to, you know, establishment politics, how, how it's been um, for a while now, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think that's, uh, that's it's nothing, kind of nothing to look forward to. I guess I would use kind of that to roll into the next thing. So we are lucky that Operation Warp Speed went well and that Donald Trump is kind of, or I wouldn't say kind of, Donald Trump's administration has 100% of 
like claimability to that. What are your thoughts on COVID and the vaccine and how it's been politicized? How do you think, or I'm sorry, Biden's administration, if they are elected and are inaugurated, how do you think they're going to handle it? And then I guess on the flip side of that, after you're done with your thoughts and how it's been politicized, how do you think that we should be moving forward with policies in our country? Well, I think this kind of notion that I've seen from so many liberals uh, that Joe Biden, uh, you know, a return to decency in the White House and common sense. That's what they love to say. And so I think that they're thinking, obviously, that Joe Biden's going to come in and COVID is just going to be, obviously, it's not going to disappear overnight, but they think he's going to be doing a, a, a much, much better job, uh, obviously, than they think Trump did. But I just don't see that as happening. Um, I think it comes down to either two questions. Either Joe Biden knows and has a great, great game plan uh, for COVID and for some odd reason didn't share it with Trump and let, you know, in his eyes, thousands and thousands of Americans die, or he doesn't have a plan and he's going to be doing much of the same stuff that Trump and Pence have already been doing. Because I don't think Trump and Pence have been making these decisions based on, uh, yeah, I think this is what would be, you know, this, this is what's best. They have medical advisors and experts that are telling them what to do, what's best. And then they ultimately make the decision, yes. But I don't think there's going to be some huge change. Uh, there really isn't. I mean, unless the, the vaccine really, really helps and works, I think that could be something that helps, obviously. Um, but I think even just little stuff like Joe Biden saying he's going to enact a 100-day uh, mask mandate, I think it's almost like he's trying to and I think, you know, I can't be for certain, but I think this, you know, this is what we'll probably see is he's going to take credit for the inevitable drop in cases because of the drop vaccine. in deaths as time, right, because of the vaccine. And also just because naturally as time goes on, we're going to, you know, find better ways to treat this. And I think uh, he's going to start enacting all of these little stupid policies like 100 day mass mandate and blah, blah, blah. So when, in, you know, a year or yeah. two, he's going to look back and say, guys, look, you know, I just, I saved the country, you know, the country was dying because you have to also think, you know, a lot of these liberals, they really think that, uh, you know, people are just like dropping dead that people are just dropping dead of COVID, you know, out in the streets or, and obviously it's, it's a very tragic, uh, disease. Um, I actually know, you know, I think three or four people who have had it and it's different for everyone. I know one guy, uh, you know, he really didn't do well with it for about a day. Uh, he was very, very sick for a day. And then he just kind of felt like the flu for the other six or five days or however long it was. And I then I know other people who were very unhealthy and they dealt with it fine. Like they didn't even feel any symptoms. And so I think it's just, it, it varies for everyone, but yeah. I think that it's very indicative, just the way that the media is, is um, portraying it. Kind of like we spoke about a little bit earlier and that loss of confidence inside American institutions is I understand that the virus is deadly. I get that. There's been, unfortunately, I think we're over the 300,000 mark now of Americans that have died in comparison to the over 2 million that were projected at the beginning of this. Like, look at February, March of this year. Yeah. Where they projected millions and millions and millions of Americans were going to die. We're doing very, very well against that. But what I think a lot of people don't do, and it's something that I try to push time and time again to my friends on the show to people I talk to is go research. Don't listen to the CNN headline or the Fox News headline or the New York Times, Washington Post, 
Breitbart, BBC, whatever news outlet that you listen to, go look. You can pull up the CDC data. And the CDC data says that if you're under 50 years old, your chance of dying from COVID is 100% like low. You're very, very minuscule, right? You're looking at like 99.98% survival rates. You're looking at if you're under the age of 19, almost 99.99% survival rate. Like I think last time I checked, people under the age of like nine years old, only 1,000 or about 1,500 people yeah. have died nationwide. Yeah, I, I did see that, yeah. So you're looking at- I, Yeah, I did see that. You More people die in car accidents a year than you currently have dying of COVID in those younger right. age groups. Now, obviously, if you are one of the vulnerable population, if you have an autoimmune disease, some pre-existing condition, you're over the age of 50, then you need to take more precautions. If you're over the age of 65, you need to be taking even more precautions because the disease is incredibly lethal to those of those vulnerable populations. Yeah. But moving to that third question, how should we move forward? I definitely think that opening the country back up to those non-vulnerable populations is the way that we should move forward. What do you think? Um, well, yeah, for, you know, from the beginning, uh, you know, the second we found out that it was, if you're, like you said, under the age of 50, if you're, you know, younger and you're uh, even moderately healthy, um, you know, you're, you're going to be fine for the most part. All right. Obviously there's outliers in, in every situation, but you're going to be fine for the most part. Um, so I never really understood uh, why it was like this. We need to quarantine everyone. You know, no one can be moving around. No one can do anything. And it just, it, it just doesn't make sense because like you were saying, even with car accidents every day, whether it be you going to the store, um, you getting on a plane, uh, to go see, like you were saying, or to go to a wedding, um, stuff like that. Uh, there's a risk in, in all of that, of course. Um, so there's, there's, a, there's a risk and there's a reward with everything that you do. And as a functioning human being, you have to decide, is the risk worth the reward? Is the risk too great for me? Is it, you know, is it something I can do? Is it worth doing? And it's you have to make a decision on your own. Risk. It's funny you say that whole like, risk reward. And I, I'm going to bring you back to, um, the vice president uh, debates real quick. And I think it shows the staunchly different opinions and views by those held on the left and those held on the right. Remember when talking about COVID, uh, Kamala Harris outright said that she does not have any trust in the American people to do exactly what you just said, that risk reward decision-making. Am I smart enough or am I capable of making a decision on my own for me and my right. family and what's best? Well, if you ask Kamala Harris, she does not trust the American people to be able to make that exact decision that you're saying. And I think that is what we're seeing. Like you've been in Florida and it being wide open compared to those up in New York right. locked down and businesses are, are just being strangled by the government. And I think that's right. something that we're definitely seeing is that that is the two viewpoints. The left says, no, Americans are not trusted enough to make conscientious decisions on their health and what's best for them and their family. And the right says, no, they're Americans. Like they have free, free opinions. Right the freedom to make that decision. And we should be helping to facilitate whatever decision-making that is, providing them adequate data and correct data to be able to make that decision that the left does not believe Americans are capable of making. Right, and, and another thing that's very inconvenient right now, if you're uh, a Democrat is look at New York um, and look at California, especially right now. I mean, they are getting absolutely demolished by cases and deaths. And I mean, they're just spiking like crazy right now. And even in the most liberal uh, areas like LA, 
um, where you would think mask compliance would be nearly at 100%, considering I'm pretty sure you can't even be walking outside without a mask. So, you know, stuff like that, you know, I'm sure mass compliance is through the roof and, you know, these heavy, heavy uh, Democrat areas. And we're still seeing just, you know, spiking, you know, the numbers are spiking through the roof. So I, I, I don't get it. And I think a lot of the, a lot of the ways that they'll explain this is they'll say, well, obviously there's Republicans in this area as well. You know, there's plenty of Republicans in California. They're just not the majority. And those clearly aren't the people wearing masks. And therefore those are the people dying and getting sick and passing it around. When in reality, um, no, it's the low income, uh, from what I've seen at least, it tends to be the low income uh, areas and neighborhoods that, you know, they, they, can't, they can't afford a lockdown. They can't afford to just go, you know, a couple of weeks or even months without working. Um, you know, they have to go to work. They have to provide for their family. And they're willing to do so by any means necessary because a lot of their conventional ways of doing so have been shut down. Uh, so when you are forcing people to basically throw caution to the side um, because their children need to be fed, and they couldn't care less about a virus, like you're saying, if they're under 50, that uh, for the most part, they're going to survive almost all the time, even if they get it. They're not, you know, they're, like, it's, it goes back to the risk and reward thing. The risk is far, far uh, greater, like the risk of them not being able to feed their family uh, than the reward of they get to stay home and they don't get sick or they don't have to worry about being sick. And I think there's a, a huge disconnect because um, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of rich liberals all right i think they um just don't understand and this is the weird thing too is they you know claim to be the the party or whatever of you know the the average man and woman you know the average working man and woman uh and they claim to not be these corporatist uh you know money grabbing people but yet the policies that they're actively pushing for uh whether they're you know uh whether they don't realize this or not it's directly affecting the more poorer areas because these people can't afford to not work I don't for a know couple if you of weeks. I agree with the Democrats saying that they are that. I think if you do agree with that, I will, I completely disagree if that's what your belief is. I believe that the Republican parties, and we showed this in the last election, that the Republican party has become the, the party of minorities. Oh, yeah. Has yeah, become no, the party of the working class Americans. Right. Yeah. I was saying, the rich, this is their belief though. Oh, I get I mean, you. You're still believe, that is Democrats right? Belief. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is their belief though, is they really think that uh, the policies and the politicians that they elect and the policies that they advocate for are for the average working man and woman in America. And that just couldn't be farther from the truth. Um, Speaking you know, of that, I, I, go ahead. What were you saying? No, no, sir, please go ahead. Oh, so I, I, was, I was just gonna say real quick, uh, you know, I don't think the GOP the politicians themselves are much better at, you know, catering to the working class and the more needy um, Americans who, you know, need help um, or need just a little bit of assistance. You know, they don't even need help, but they need just a little bit of assistance right now. And uh, I don't think the GOP is doing much to, to help them. I would agree with that. Um, but I do think that definitely, uh, like you were saying in this election, it was proven that, the Democrats are not the party uh, that they think they are. They're not the party of the working class Americans. The Democrats uh, are the, the party, party of, of social elites and the right. party of, unfortunately, the very, very poor. Right. I and guess, uh, yeah, I think I think they manipulate a lot of their uh, 
a lot of their voters, unfortunately. And I'm sure the GOP does the same, of course. I mean, it's it's it'd be naive to not say that the GOP is uh, doing the same thing. I but think that- I just think it's so out in the open and blatant. And people, uh, you know, because every four years it's, well, it's either you vote for us or you vote for a racist. And yeah. so, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty messed up, though. It's, it's very messed up. I'm going to bring you back to your statement about you don't believe the GOP is um, necessarily doing everything they can to take care of Americans. And that's going to roll us into our next topic. What are your thoughts on both the House stimulus package and then the counteroffer that uh, Mitch McConnell and the uh, Republican senators brought forward? Um, so, yeah, when I saw the, the $600 being floated around, uh, and, and like and even like you were saying as well, uh, we talked before a little bit offline, um, I'm 100% all for concentrating this money uh, to the hands of people who are the most needy and have been most affected um, you know, by lockdowns or whatever it may be. But um, so you could say I would disagree with the fact that we're just going to give out a $600 blank check to uh, people all the way up to, I think it's like two, if you're making $200,000, you're going to be getting money now. $75,000 or less, according to the house bill and $150,000 or less for couples. Yeah. Yeah. um, I mean, I don't know. I I think, uh, I think the 2000 uh, definitely, definitely is a good idea. I, I would like to see it concentrated like you were saying, more into the hands of people who really, really need it, uh, whether it's be pay bills or whatever it may be. Um, so it's, it's, you know, you could say one negative aspect of it is not, not everyone who's desperately in need is going to be getting a check. Like my mom, for instance, um, she is actually a teacher. And so, she, you know, she's not making great money, uh, but my dad makes, you know, fairly good money, you could say. So it's not like we have been super, super, super hard hit and we are dying for a $2,000 check. But if it's passed, my mom's going to get one. So, you know, stuff like that, I disagree with. She shouldn't be getting a check. She doesn't need the check. I can, she really doesn't. And I'm going to kind of use this section to call you out on something that I, that I think you and I disagree with. And like you said, we talked about it. You, um, on your Instagram, you directly called out that you do not believe that Dan Crenshaw is a senator for the people. Like you don't believe in that because of his very, very stark disagreement with the uh, relief bill. Um, well, one thing I would say is it's not it's not because he disagrees with the relief bill. It's because he disagreed with the relief bill while simultaneously agreeing with the omnibus spending bill that sent uh, hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars to foreign countries that I guarantee you Americans couldn't even find on a map. Places like Burma, Pakistan, you know, you know, for gender programs and gender studies and democracy programs, like it's just it 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 really disgusted me to see so many people vote yes for it. And then when it comes to giving Americans more money, they're saying, well, we don't have the money or you don't deserve the money, you don't need the money. But for some reason, Pakistan needs 20 million for their gender study programs. Well, what I think so, a lot of people forget, fail, or either forget or don't know is that a lot of the things in the omnibus spending come from prior treaty agreements, things that we agreed upon before COVID, like things that we said, okay, you do this for us, we'll do this for you. And then we've already agreed upon spending that. And so we've engaged. Right, right. A lot, a lot of it's foreign aid that was already kind of set in place. And so I think that to say, occurs, right. to say that either a senator or GOP senators or how even Democrat senators who voted for the bill, the omnibus spending bill, based on the fact that it had foreign aid in it, I think is just 
a little unfair to them because they can't just well, say no to that or they're saying no to treaties that Americans have, and the American government has already agreed to give to them in exchange okay, for whatever. But, right, right. No, I, no, I definitely agree. Right. That, that's just that's just the fact of the matter is a lot of the not a lot of the spending, but at least a, a decent majority of the spending was already agreed upon, like you were saying, it's just annual uh, foreign aid that we give out. But that also doesn't mean that I fully support us giving five hundred billion dollars uh, to Israel. Um, you know, and you. Like, I'm not like it's not like I, I don't like Israel. I have no problem with Israel. They're a very good ally of ours. I think we need obviously a strong ally in the Middle East, and that's what they are. But the idea of sending $500 billion to them right now, in this moment, when we are simultaneously telling Americans we can't afford to give you more than $600, I think it, it just doesn't, uh, doesn't make much sense to me how, how, uh, how that's okay or how that's even fair to taxpayers who are ultimately paying Israel. It's not like the government is like, well, hold on, we'll get to you guys later. No, no, it's our money. It's our money that they are giving to Israel as millions of Americans suffer. And yeah, I, uh, I, guess my I don't question agree with is, Do you agree? Do you think the $600 is the only thing that happened to it? You know what I'm saying? And I think, and the reason I ask that is because- Well, no, 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 I, I know it's not. No, there's I know it's hundreds not. of other things in the early, I wouldn't say hundreds, but you have things like- um, Unemployment. Protection yeah. loans, eviction protection, extending of unemployment benefits, right. things like that, that obviously, help the American people as well. Right, and, and, and that was why um, Trump obviously signed the bill the day before the government was about to go into a shutdown uh, be, because he wanted unemployment benefits to be um, extended and the PVP loans, all of that. And so that I understand. Uh, but then of course, immediately after that, he's not pushing for $2,000 checks because I think uh, like him, and, and here's the thing, uh, if he was pushing for $2,000 checks right before the election, which I think he was at the very least pushing for $1,200 checks. Um, whether you say that's him caring about the American people or trying to win an election, uh, you know, I don't think it's, I don't think he was doing it, you know, sinister, like he didn't really care and he just wanted to win the election. But the fact that it's okay, it's after the election, he has no worry about, you know, needing to win over voters or anything like that. The people who are already on his side for the most part, the people who stuck by him. And he's still pushing for $2,000 checks because obviously, a lot of people could use it. And like you were saying, I, I know, uh, I know it wasn't just a $600 checks. I've heard it's, you know, billions and in, in other, in other uh, you know, forms of money uh, have kind of gone to Americans in an indirect way to help stimulate the economy. Um, and I think, you know, you could make the argument that the economy is on the up. Uh, you know, we don't need $2,000 checks for everybody. Um, but that, but it, it go, all goes back to the thing, like I was saying earlier, uh, I 100% agree that, you know, not everyone needs a $2,000 check, 100%, you know, probably not even, probably close to half the people who will get one if it passes, probably don't, you know, really need it. But should we let the other 50% of the people who really seriously are probably depending on it, or at least some form of help, uh, should we kind of let them suffer? Uh, because the other 50% of people don't really need it. I mean, I think we should either revise the bill and concentrate it more into low income, uh, you know, areas or, or, or taxpayers, but I think it's a sticky situation. You hit it right on the head there. And I think that, that is also a very huge issue is you were, you're talking about a bill that was an omnibus bill that was over close to 6,000 pages. You have a relief bill that was 
everything was brokered in, in private between the leaders of right. both houses of Congress with special interest groups, like why we're giving millions of dollars to count redfish in the Gulf right now. I, there are tons of things in there that I don't necessarily agree with. And right. I can agree with you that I, do I like the idea of sending foreign governments a, a crap ton of money while Americans are suffering? No, on the flip side of that, just to ensure that no one can say that I'm flipping is, do I understand why it's being done? Yes. And so, but I think what is it, even bigger issues, you're talking about this huge bill that made it through both houses of Congress without any revisions or any amendments. When those two right. exact same houses of Congress can't even like decide on naming a federal highway without a revision exactly. or an amendment. Like, and I, I think that is huge issues and I don't hold strong agreement with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, but she was like, it was, they, they held hostage. Like the right. leaders yeah. of Congress- Yeah, no, I saw that she was 100% right held them hostage. Okay, you have this huge bill, you now have four hours, read it, and I want an up or down vote at the end of it. And so I think that that was, it was wrong. It should not have been done that way. It should not have been brokered in secret. It should have been presented to both floors of Congress. It should have been talked about. But what I, I also disagree with, and I, I don't know if you're gonna agree with me on this, is I'm a huge advocate that senators should be debating things. That is their job. From the start right. of our government 200 plus years ago, they're the aristocratic house, them it's a debate. That's why there's a filibuster, why they can't, there's no time limits in the Senate because their job is to be away from the people, not necessarily like worried about the whims of constituency. And that's why their terms are six limit or six years instead of two years. So they don't have to worry about that. And they should be debating whether it's good or bad for the government. And so I think that was a very, very, I think it was very piss poor the way that the first relief bill in the omnibus bill was brought. But on the flip side of that, I also agree with uh, the Senate leader McConnell saying, no, we're not bringing this straight to an up-down vote for $2,000. We need to be debated. It needs to be talked about. Yeah. Well, another thing is I'm pretty sure um, it was passed. They wanted to pass it with unanimous consent, which was not going to happen in the Senate. Uh, there was already six, I think there was six, um, Senator, or the, roughly around that number, who um, were not on board with giving two thousand dollar checks to to Americans. Um, Rand Paul, I don't right. know who Rubio was. Ted Cruz, right, um, right. So, and, and, and you know, whatever their reasons may be, whatever that's you know that's for them. Um, but the fact that, like, you know, just to go back to AOC, the fact that uh, you know she says that. And I agreed with it 100. percent You know, she was spot on. But then the fact that she goes and votes yes for it, yes, uh, after she admits on Twitter to her 20 million followers, whatever it is, that uh, no, I didn't read this bill. I have no idea what's in it. But and I voted yes for it. She's like, "Yep, I'm gonna vote yes for it." So stuff like that um, really kind of, really kind of annoys me. That you you know, know, it's all virtue signaling. Yeah, it's it's all virtue signaling. You know, these people they don't care. I don't care about you and me that they, they couldn't, you know, they couldn't care less. And to see them uh, pretend like they care is almost, it, it's insulting. It like is seriously insulting uh, that you sit here and you tell me that you, you didn't read the bill. You had no time to read the bill. And that there's all of these terrible, terrible uh, little things that have been slipped into these bills uh, made for corporations and lobbyists. Um, and then you vote yes for it. So, you know, and, and, and same with Dan Crenshaw. I'm not, I don't think he was as vocal about, you know, oh, I, I didn't read the bill. I didn't have time. You know, this, this is crazy. 
but the fact that you still vote yes for it, I don't care who you are, the fact you voted yes for it without reading it, uh, I think shows me just how, with just how much seriousness you take your job. Clearly, they don't care. They don't, they don't take it seriously that people are, you know, seriously suffering and their, you know, they, they you know, their, their idea of a, a, a relief bill is passing a, a $6,000 page bill. That's like a slap in the face to us. Um, I think that so, yeah. too is that we, and this is going to go way, way wider and take it down a hole that we don't actually have time to talk about, unfortunately, is that there is a wide, a growing popularity in that deep state bureaucracy that the people who are actually legislating laws in America are not the congressmen. It's this deep state bureaucracy with special intentions in mind that then bring it. And those people that are actually legislating the laws are not accountable to the American people. Like, right. like those special interest groups that made up that, that $6,000 or 6,000 page bill, which I, I skimmed over or at least tried to, if you've ever tried to read a bill, it's full of a bunch of like hanky panky right. ridiculousness. Um, yeah, exactly. But I tried to read over it and you just saw all the special intentions and you, no one knows who wrote that. Like that wasn't AOC writing that or Nancy Pelosi or Dan Crenshaw or name, insert any name inside the house, right? That was right. not them that did it. That was some deep state bureaucrat that sits on Capitol Hill that we don't even know who it was. And then they just happened to vote for it. And I think that is a, a wider issue that we have amongst American politics currently. Yeah. Well, if I could say one more thing, I think I would say that um, the people who like, you know, just go to go back to the people who voted yes for it, though, you know, because, you know, co these congressmen and congresswomen, they're not stupid. They know uh, that this bill should never have been passed. They know it was not written by one of their colleagues with good intentions. Uh, you know, they're not stupid. They know all of these things. And so the fact that not even, uh, you know, there was only like a hand, like, like a, I think it was um, 87 voted against it, I think. Yeah, uh, well, in, in the House, it was, yeah. I think it was, it was less than that. It was about 50 Republicans and then like four Democrats. I mean, it was like astonishing. It was, I think it was 50, I think 50 something people voted against it or, or maybe 60. Um, but once again, you could even argue that those 60 people who voted against it just voted against it as a virtue signaling because they knew it was going to pass. They knew it was going to pass. You don't bring something to the floor for a vote. Uh, that's so critical as an omnibus spending bill just for the fun of it. Like, you know, Nancy Pelosi would have known that she had the votes to pass this Republicans. Uh, uh, what's his name? McCarthy. He would have known that he, he had the votes on the Republican side to pass this bill. And so they went forward with it. So those 60 people who opposed it, you could even argue that they didn't even really, I mean, did they really even care or was it just another virtue signaling because they knew it was going to pass anyways, and then they knew they could be like, well, I was one of the people who voted against it, well, as if it really means really, anything. I think that's what we have going on with the um, Senate with Mitch McConnell and his, like, counter, like, bill that, okay, we'll do $2,000 stimulus, but we're also going to repeal Section 230 and yeah. create a commission on election, which I agree with all of those things. I agree with every right. single one of those. But I will say that I don't think we should be cramming COVID relief in with 230, Article 230 protection, and then election. I think those should be things that are done individually from each other, even though I agree with every single one of them. But what that does is that allows two Republicans say, well, I voted yes for $2,000 stimulus, knowing that the Democrats are not going to do that. They're not going to lose their hold on the institutions that are protected under 230 protections. They know, 
We all know right. they're not going to vote for that. We all know that if indeed the election was completely fraudulent and there is widespread voter fraud that ultimately ended in a change in the election, Democrats are not going to vote for an election commission to be started solely to investigate election fraud. So I think that allows Republicans to say, oh, well, I voted for $2,000 stimulus. Like, I did that. And it's the Democrats that are the bad guys. They didn't do it. And so I think that smart move on the Republicans, because Mitch McConnell's not stupid. We all know that. He's been oh, yeah, no. very, very long time. Yeah, he's not stupid. And that allows Republicans to say, well, I voted for it, while putting that, oh, well, Democrats obviously care more about these other things than they do about right. They care more right. about protecting the institution. They care more about protecting what actually happened in the election than they care about giving relief to Americans. Right. And so, yeah, I think if you're if you're a conservative or independent or even a, a Democrat who opposes, you know, Section 230 wants it repealed and would like a commission on voter fraud, uh, I, I, I don't think that those would pass individually, though, because I think Democrats would argue, um, well, we're not going to pass um, a law, you know, that forms an election commission on fraud because, you know, they, they would find a way to, to make an excuse for it. They would just say, well, you know, Republicans are just going to use this to undermine Joe Biden for the next four years as if they didn't do the same thing, uh, you know, with Trump, of course. Uh, so, you know, I don't see them voting for that as a standalone bill. I know they're not going to vote for 230 as a standalone bill. So I think uh, realistically, if we're being honest, the best chance we had of getting 230 pushed through and the you know commission on election fraud. I think it was with the $2,000 check. Well, that's why I said- I, I still don't it think- very, very smart. It was a very smart move by Mitch McConnell and the Republicans. Yeah. Like they did do that. Like I said, I can, it's kind of like that thing. Like I can agree with something while disagreeing with something else is that I agree that we need to do those things. And I agree with the way that, or in the way that it has to be done, unfortunately, just because of modern politics. But at the same time, I can disagree with the idea that I don't like just jamming a bunch of things into a bill. I, I, I don't like doing that. Right. But for di diplomatic reasons and for politic, po political reasons, I can understand why it's done that way. And I guess yeah. that'll lead us to probably our last question is, what if the $2,000 stimulus is passed? If it actually does whatever somehow is passed, or hell, even if it isn't passed, how do you think that's going to affect public policy? in the future, seeing this is such a hot button item and is setting precedences that we've never really encountered in American politics. Right, well, I think you have you bring up a good point there because uh, that is something I would definitely be worried about in the future. Uh, assuming, you know, if God forbid, uh, you know, Biden is, is inaugurated on the, on the 20 or the 20th, um, you're right, it does set a precedent, you know, a dangerous one that, uh, you know, we can just lock the country down and then, you know, we can just print money and everything will be all right. So that is, that is somewhat scary that there's such a push uh, for that. Um, because I think what, what really Americans should be advocating for is, okay, yeah, give me the $600 or whatever, or maybe $1,200, not 2000 and just open everything up. Just give me a one-time payment of $1,200 to get caught up on my bills and then open the economy you yeah, know, right so I can actually go back to work. That right there, if we go back to COVID and what we think should be happening, just open the damn country back up. Like protect your vulnerable population, put Americans back to work, recover the economy because Americans and American ingenuity, American innovation, American manufacturing will always win 
every single time if you let Americans work. It brought us out right. of the Great Depression. It did great things in World War II. Like there's a history of when you put Americans to work, good things come of it. Of course, of course. And another, just one more scary thing too as well, over 35% of all US dollars that have ever been printed have been printed in 2020 alone. So out of the 300 or you know however long it is, uh, out of 300 years of our country's history, over 35% of all US dollars printed have been in the last year. Um, so we're gonna be facing problems down the line and down the road to come, uh, that's for sure. Did you watch um, the video that Senator Rand Paul put out? Uh, no, no. Um, I have a clip of it in my, I think it's my Christmas episode, um, if you want to watch it. There is a clip where Rand Paul pretty much, because he opposed the bill, he said, we cannot go around just making money. And any person that voted for the bill, but then says that they oppose socialism at the same time, is lying. And that the fact that we cannot just print willy-nilly money without any repercussion. That there is, if you continue to print U.S. money, the value of the dollar will be nothing and we will lose American money. And that will be a burden on the taxpayers for generations to come. The only, I mean, the the only thing I would disagree with there with Rand Paul is, uh, which obviously, you know, he's very, very intelligent. He obviously knows this. Um, I, you know, I think he's right with saying, yeah, well, actually, no, I don't really think that's right. I don't think you, it's as easy as saying you can't oppose socialism and then say, uh, yeah, Americans deserve a check after their state or their business or whatever it may be, their job has been shut down for the past eight months. So, you know, I think the government, they messed up. They screwed up big time. I, and, I wouldn't uh, say the federal government. I would say state governments because ultimately right. federalism takes takes place. Like we are a federal right. state Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but the states can't bail out their citizens. They don't have the money to do that. They can't deficit spend. I, so I, the only remedy for the for the problem is, I mean, you could you could have the federal government. You could pass a bill where maybe they could send direct money to some of the states that have been uh, under lockdown, and then those states could distribute it to their population, or they could choose to uh, use it for unemployment benefits, whatever it may be. Uh, you know, maybe they, they would be able to decide better what to do, which they probably would be. Uh, you know, to be totally honest, the governors probably know how to run their state a lot better than, uh, you know, the people in Washington. Um, but once again, if, if you know, the, the state governments, they can't deficit spend. They can't just print money and give it to their citizens while they keep them in a lockdown. And once again, they shouldn't be in a lockdown. But in cases where we can't control that, I can't control Gavin Newsom, you know, reopening the economy. So does that mean we should just let the Californians who are I mean, they're, they're suffering. They haven't been open in eight months. Should we just continue to let them suffer or should we give them some help? I can agree with that. And I'm going to propose this idea. I think that if we're going to spend money like that, here's how I think that it should have been handled. So we all know that the state labor departments keep track of unemployment, of who's fired, who's hired, right? All of that. Right. I think the federal government should have required every single state department to report the names and numbers of those who had been fired or laid off due to the COVID pandemic. And then they send that number to the federal government and then the federal government then allocates relief for those individuals, right? For those very specific targeted individuals that would allow those who have been adversely affected by COVID to receive the stimulus that they need. While those of us like me, um, you, 
like other frontline workers, just people who have not been adversely affected by it financially, that we're not sending this widespread, just sweeping like money to everybody that the American government doesn't have. Let's just be honest. We don't have it. Well, yeah. And so well, yeah, no, you're hundred percent right. We don't have the money and we shouldn't be spending, we shouldn't be sending out, you know, just blank checks to everyone who asked for it. You know, if you need it, you need it, but you know, we shouldn't just be giving everyone. Could have gone about doing it a little bit smartly. And that's just one idea and how the federal government may have thought about it and then found out a reason why it wouldn't work. I don't know. I don't sit there, but I think that would have been a much better solution than like you said, than just blanket money to everybody. Right. Right. Well, I think I think uh, I think it's quite indicative that um, the, just it shows the level of incompetency with the federal government that they can't come up with a plan like this, that they can't come up with a bill that would provide relief uh, directly to Americans that are suffering the most. They it's almost like they're too incompetent or they're too lazy or, you know, I, I don't know what it may be, because uh, obviously the data, the data is there. You can go on. Uh, you know, I know at least in Florida, uh, you know, you can go on, you know, the Florida website or whatever, and you can see uh, the unemployment claims and who's filing for unemployment and stuff like that. And who's receiving benefits. You know, I'm pretty, I'm pretty sure you can see all that. I'm sure that's so, in every state's labor statistics. I'm right, sure. right, right. Exactly. So I don't understand why, uh, why they haven't done that, why they haven't looked at that. But once again, I don't think it's some evil sinister thing. I think it just shows uh, just how incompetent, just how incompetent. Um, the federal government is. Maybe they don't know. I should run for government. <laughs> seriously. I mean, seriously. But, you know, I have wondered that too as well. Uh, but it always comes back to, well, you know, how would it end up? How, how would it go? Because you see like, like, like uh, Crenshaw, just for, you know, quick example, you know, I was a huge fan of his and I was like, uh, uh, I loved how he made those quick little videos. You know, he broke down why he's voting yes on this or no on this and why it's a good or bad idea. I liked that something new that I hadn't seen before with a lot of other uh, congressmen. Let's take but, a right there. Let's just stop right there and just talking about his videos. His election videos were probably the, the best re-election videos that I saw out of any person running. Really? You didn't see him like he had like, cause he was in the military and special forces. So like, he's like, I have a team, I'm assembling a team to save America. Like he skydived out of the back of a, of a plane. Like just like, just something I've never seen before. And like, it was all like kind of like military, like high tech, and that he was yeah. on a mission to save America. It was probably one of the best and like funniest like election campaign videos that I saw. Well, yeah, I'm sure he, I'm sure he can make a great campaign <laughs> ad. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, like, I mean, just just on him though, I was you know I was a huge fan of him. I was like, oh yeah, he's great. And then uh, it just slowly over time, I just start to see it just it just appeared to me that he was that he was changing. He wasn't. It wasn't the same stuff that, you know, was so uh, important to him before he got elected and right when he got elected didn't really seem to be matching up with what he was saying or what he was advocating for. Uh, and one of the main things or one of the you know main situations you could point at is when he got huge backlash uh, after he tried doing the red flag laws. Yeah. I mean, here's a guy in the military. And also another thing is he's 100 percent, which. You know, I don't know where you stand on you know subjects like this, but foreign policy, I think he's a disaster when it comes to foreign policy. I mean, he doesn't, and and once again, he's definitely more uh, educated and knows more than I do, than or than you know many of us because he's been overseas and he's been in these places where he's saying, you know, we need to have troops here, we need to have troops here, 
you know, for our own interest and our safety. Um, but I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't really like that. I don't like how we have thousands and thousands and thousands of troops in Afghanistan. I don't really like how, you know, we have all these troops in, in Afghanistan and in the Middle East when a lot of it could be done. I'm not saying withdraw all the troops. Okay. I'm not saying withdraw all of them, but with modern technology, the idea that we need 30,000, 40,000, and even more troops in small areas like this, when what we're going up against is nowhere near as advanced as we are. I think it's, uh, I think some of it is definitely overblown. I think for sure. If we're going to talk about just foreign policy real quick, I, I just want to cover two things. And I want to say two things kind of like in, I wouldn't necessarily say rebuttal of what you say. I think that the first thing is that the way Americans perceive foreign policy, I will relate it to a, the way a lot of Americans perceive law enforcement is that there is a disconnect in that normal, typical Americans, I'm not saying you, I'm just saying normal Americans don't right. understand what goes into foreign policy just as normal Americans don't necessarily know the law and what goes into law enforcement. And so right. I think that is a huge issue is everyone judges foreign policy on based on what they like feel should be done, not necessarily based on what is proven to be effective or what the intelligence says should be done. Right. Um, well, I will, well, I think, I think it's also important to note though, the intelligence in 03 and 04, the same intelligence that we're now using today was saying that there was WMDs in Iraq and we had to invade them and turn their country upside down because if we didn't, they were going to blow us up. And that I, obviously never, yeah, never was the case. Never came to fruition. I, I can agree with that. And the second thing I would say about foreign policy is that I think a lot of it, like let's say 40,000 troops in Afghanistan, I don't necessarily think that that is necessary to combat ISIS. I think that we do a lot of force posturing to places like Iran, because let's say, for instance, we pulled completely out of Iraq and Afghanistan, just with, withdrew, or hell, even withdrew 30,000 and left 10,000 troops there. What does that signal to places like Iran and the rebuilding of the ISIS caliphate, right. and Russia and Ukraine, all those countries that have a invested interest in regaining those territories? What, right. what would that mean maybe not now for America, maybe not five years for Americans, but what does that mean for 10 years, 20 years down the road for Americans? I think that yeah. a lot of it, we're not doing it to necessarily overtake come, like countries. Like we're not sitting there like Rome and just trying to take over countries and then just trying to make them part of America. I think a lot of it is forced posturing for national defense. Um, in, in, in the Middle East, you know, when it comes to Iran, that, you know, that, that is definitely, uh, for the most part, true. We couldn't, we obviously couldn't just, you know, withdraw 30,000 if we had 40,000 troops there. It would definitely have to be short, you know, increments over a long, long period of time. And we'd obviously have to be monitoring the situation very, very closely if anything changed. So then we could, uh, you know, easily send back troops over if, if, if we needed to in a worst case scenario. But just to, uh, and this, you know, this is another thing that I uh, kind of missed. And when I was talking about what, what I think the next four years will be, um, if you look at who he's appointing, Joe Biden, it is Obama officials, you know, galore. It is just Obama galore. Well, yeah, I said in a show a few days so ago I think it's, that they were looking like an Obama third administ administration, like a third term. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, uh, that's, that's definitely how it's going to be in my eyes. And what scares me the most about that is the foreign policy side of of, of the Obama regime when he was doing covert operations and missions 
uh, in Somalia and Libya and Yemen and all of these places where we had no business being. And here we are um, bombing Yemen and bombing Libya and all this stuff. And, and let's not forget in Yemen right now, and, and even been a couple months ago, um, I don't know if you remember seeing this on social media. I mean, they're suffering from a huge humanitarian crisis. And I think it's fair to say a lot of that comes directly from us completely bombing them and destroying um, a lot of their resources uh, under Obama. And I think that Obama's era politics when it comes to foreign policy is I am a big advocate, not just because I'm a big advocate of Trump and I like everything he's done because I don't, I despise a lot of the things he's done, but I really enjoy his foreign policy. And the reason why is because under the Obama administration, we were a, a country of like bending wheels and we gave millions of dollars to Iran. Like, do we really believe that that millions of dollars we gave to Iran really stopped them from building nuclear weapons? Or do they take that million dollars and say, yeah, we'll stop and then turn, give that money into covert operations, into covert building exactly. of like the refining of uranium. So I don't believe that. I believe that the idea of like, for instance, take when Trump first came into office, do we all remember what he did like the second or third day of being in office when Russia invaded U- Ukraine, or I'm sorry, Crimea, when Ukraine, Ukraine, Crimea. And then he just had, he just sent um, Triton missiles, just said, okay, well, you want to do that? Well, here you go. This is what happens when when you do things against humanity, when you do right. things wrong, when you go against American interests. And he set that, that policy of deterrence. And I think deterrence right. is the best form of national defense. We should, we should not be out there like Obama era policies and just saying that we're just going to give millions of dollars if you don't do what we say. I think the idea, well, the yeah, is and, if you do bad things, yeah. bad things are going to occur to you. 100%. And another, another strange thing that you notice is kind of a pattern uh, we, you know, with Obama under, under, his, uh, under his time as president is places, like I was saying, Somalia, Libya, and Yemen, they were getting absolutely destroyed uh, for seemingly no reason. I mean, these were not like huge, you know, these countries were nowhere near Iran, okay? It's not like they uh, were anywhere near as powerful, as influential, um, as advanced as Iran. And Obama's idea was, okay, so Iran, who's a serious, serious threat to us, let's give them, like you're saying, hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, and hopefully that'll, you know, calm them down. But for then other countries like Libya, Yemen, Somalia, uh, and don't forget in Libya, um, Gaddafi, I mean, he was pretty much doing everything that, you know, we wanted him to do because he saw what was going on in other countries. And he talked about it and basically said, I don't want to be the next guy who's overthrown uh, because I didn't listen to, you know, the great king, Mr. Obama, and uh, his secretary of state, of course, Hillary. And they, I mean, they, they just got, got torn apart. Uh, regardless, it didn't matter. And it's because I think, and honestly, I don't know what it was. I don't know if it was for oil. I mean, I, I honestly have no idea I think I'm why we... The Obama administration was probably one of the worst administrations. I would put President Obama in his administration if I was gonna, to rank them like every administration, like S being like the best, and F being the worst, probably in like the D or F category. Like the Obama administration yeah. was terrible for Americans, terrible for America, terrible for relations right. with allies. Like it was just a miserable, miserable, miserable time, in my opinion. And and another thing though is I think what's even scarier is 
how so many people to this day have no idea of some of the crazy outlandish things that he did because it was never covered in the mainstream news. Because remember, you know, they were always droning Americans. Oh yeah, he killed they a sixteen-year-old boy. He killed a sixteen-year-old American citizen, an American citizen who was visiting his grandfather and his extended family in Yemen, and he blew him up. He drone striked him. And when asked, you know, of course, you know, why were you doing this? Because let me just give you a, a, a quick, quick uh, breakdown. This, you know, this sixteen-year-old American citizen was at a uh, a local restaurant or whatever, a civilian restaurant. And he decided it was a good idea while there was numerous, numerous, obviously innocent lives, but under, you know, his, his belief was that there was a terrorist at that restaurant. So he's like, mm, it's worth it. Let me just kill a bunch of innocent people to get that one terrorist. And I think that's a, that's the trend we see in our government, which is kind of scary that, we, you know, we just, we have no remorse because he showed no remorse. I mean, when he was asked about how he did this, he immediately pivoted and, you know, said, like I, like I just said there, well, you know, it, we had under good authority that there was a terrorist there. And there was no follow-up question like, well, so then regardless of, of whether there's a terrorist there, why were you bombing a civilian restaurant in a country where we have no business being in the first place? And, the, you know, that, that question never came. And stuff like that just blows my mind uh, that he was able to get away with stuff like that so easily without even being questioned about it. You know, he was never once held accountable for some of the uh, you know bad things that he that he really has directly linked just the same thing as like how oh yeah sorry how biden has like escaped all form of hard questions that the media just is in cahoots i guess you could say i can't believe i just used that word cahoots in cahoots with like with the democrats like that is just the media is definitely a woke and democrat held institution and until that is broken we will never see Things that like Obama did under his administration covered, you will never see well, right, Biden right. held accountable or asked any hard questions. We saw that with things like the Hunter Biden scandal or his 1993 Law Enforcement Act, like all of these things that are very, very bad that right. Biden has enacted or Obama has enacted never come to light for American people because the institutions that they trust to give it to them say that Trump is an evil, bad orange man and that he does nothing right, and that Biden is going to be the savior that saves America, and that everything right. he does is absolutely right. And so I think until we fix that issue, we will never see a change inside the American political spectrum currently. I guess that yeah. can be kind of like yeah. our final thought. If we have any huge takeaway here, is just that the American people need to be cognizant and find information on their own instead of relying on those, like, indoctrined institutions that have just been right. and uh i'm sure you've heard of you know the, the news company politico uh yeah. you've heard of them yeah i read them daily yeah so right so they're obviously or at least from what i've uh seen over the past couple months and stuff um they're not totally totally biased they definitely you know aren't the hugest fan of trump but not they're not like uh you know cnn or, or msnbc you could say but these reporters at politico uh i saw this actually this morning um and i think this, you know a lot of reporters is going to be happening with them uh over the next four years if biden's in office they're starting to realize that you cannot ask questions you will not ask questions you will not deviate 
from what they tell you to do if you're a reporter. Uh, you know, just this morning, you know, Biden was giving a press conference or whatever a couple of days ago. And the political reporter, he's the senior White House guy or something, or, or I think they, they might, might have been a girl. Um, but, but, you know, they said how uh, Biden basically, they shut off because the reporters were in like kind of like a Zoom uh, thing like we are in now. And there's a chat, obviously. And they, they turned off the chat so reporters couldn't ask any questions. And I think, uh, obviously, that's not like, you know, a huge, huge deal. But I think it's a sign, though, and it's pretty, it's a good indicator of what's to come. Uh, if, you're, if you're a journalist uh, who, who uh, you know, strongly opposed Trump and kind of got used to being able to speak out whenever you wanted to and say whatever you wanted to, uh, that's going to change very quickly for a lot of them, for a lot of them. I 100% I agree. Well, Chase, it has been awesome having you on here today. Your insight, obviously, you and I share some, some similar views. We oppose each other on some similar views. And I'm actually really excited that you got to come on here. I think that for both your viewership and my viewership, we hit a lot of hot button items. I hope, really, really, I really, really hope that a lot of people over at New Era Republicans, if you don't follow Chase over there, you can find him on his Instagram there. Go follow him, give him a, give him a like follow him. He's sharing awesome things and he's doing great to try to bring out that at least the truth in my matter. So Chase, thank you so much for coming on. I know that it's been a long time coming and we had some hiccups, but I wouldn't trade in for anything. And I'm glad that we got to get you on the show. Yeah, man, I appreciate uh, you giving me the opportunity to get on here. Um, so yeah, I definitely appreciate it. Uh, it was, it was definitely a good conversation. So I appreciate it. Awesome, Chase. Everybody, as always, may God bless you. God bless your family. Thanks for watching the Conservative Voice Show.